For this Christmas season, we are doing a teaching series called Here Comes Heaven. And, and we're really looking at that God became flesh. Right? And we, we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Jesus being born as a baby, but we need to consider that God became flesh not the moment the baby was born. God became flesh the moment the baby was conceived. And we celebrate that God became flesh. And what really happened when God became flesh is heaven came to earth to engage with humanity as a human being. And so we are celebrating that heaven has come to earth. And the thing is, for those that were paying attention, it should not have been a surprise that God became flesh and dwelt among us because he was announcing it. He began announcing it not just when the angel showed up to a young teenager named Mary. He began announcing it thousands of years before that, even in the book of Genesis at the very beginning of mankind, God began announcing, here comes heaven. And we decided that we're going to spend this Christmas season looking at those announcements and finding hope and finding joy and encouragement from the announcements that heaven is coming and all that was coming with it. And so last week we looked at the angel Gabriel making the announcement to Mary, but we also went back to Genesis chapter 3 and we looked at God's first announcement that heaven was coming and he actually made it to Satan in the Garden of Eden. When the serpent had fooled Eve and Adam and gotten them to eat of the forbidden fruits and because of that sin came and with sin came a curse and Satan thought that he had won a great victory and stolen mankind away from God, God made the announcement to that serpent that day that heaven was coming. You might think you've won a victory today. You might think you've stolen something from me today, but heaven is coming to bring it back to me. He said, from the seed of the woman will come one who the serpent will bruise his heel, but he would crush the serpent's head. And he made the announcement, heaven is on its way. So we're going to continue today. If I was going to come up with a title for this sermon, I would call it the ever-expanding kingdom. We're going to look at the ever-expanding kingdom today. But we're going to dive into, believe it or not, Isaiah chapter 9. Now, Brian and I did not share notes this week. We did not discuss it. And so in first service, when Brian got up during communion and said, I'm going to read from Isaiah 9, I was like, hey, we're hearing from God. We both, bought, we both brought the same scripture passage today to share. So if you got your Bibles, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 9. And the declaration of God through Isaiah was really a declaration of hope. It was bringing hope in a dark time. And I think hope is critical because we can get through a whole lot of stuff if we've got hope. It's when we lose hope. Now, when life is hard and, and things look bleak and darkness is coming in around us, when we lose hope, that's when depression sets in. That's when people begin to consider suicide. That's when people just throw in the towel and say, you know what, I'm not going to dream for my life anymore. I'm not going to try to live for God anymore. I'm not going to believe for anything good to happen anymore because I, I've just had enough. I've lost hope. But when we have hope, we can get through just about anything. Now, I had to get a crown this week, and, and I've never gotten a crown before, and so I was kind of nervous about it. I didn't know how painful it was going to be or what I was going to go through. And so I sit down with the dentist, and the first question I ask the dentist is, how long is this going to be? 
Like, how long am I going to be here? And she said, it's going to be about an hour and 20 minutes. And I was like, all right, I can get through just about anything for an hour and 20 minutes, right? Like, it gave me hope to know that no matter how bad it got, no matter how painful it was, it was only going to last an hour and 20 minutes. So sure enough, she gets that drill out, and she starts going after it in my mouth. And I'm just like, an hour and 20 minutes, hour and 20 minutes, I can do Hope can get us through. I figured I could last an hour and 20 minutes. It's kind of like running a marathon, right? And they put those mile markers out when you're running a marathon. And, of course, they put them out so that if you're timing yourself, you can keep pace with how fast you think you're supposed to be going. But when you just start the race, those mile markers are like a curse, right? Mile one? That's it? I've only run a mile? But when you get to the end of the race, those mile markers, those bring hope. Oh, mile marker 23? I'm almost there. I can do this. Mile marker 24? I can get through this. There's a reward at the end. I'm going to press through. And you see, life is like a marathon, right? There's ups and downs. There's times when you're feeling good and you've got that runner's high. And there's times when your legs feel like rubber and you don't think you can take another step. But through it all, if we've got hope, if we know that no matter what we're going through now, there's a reward at the end, and the reward is worth it, and I'm going to persevere no matter what because I'm going to get to that reward, we'll get through. And I believe that in Isaiah chapter 9, as the prophet began to declare the word of God, that's exactly what he was doing, is he was giving people hope in a dark time in the midst of a struggle, letting them know the reward is going to be worth it. Don't give up. And don't stop. So before we read the prophet's words, let's talk about what's happening. Who is Isaiah talking to and, and, and what's going on? And he's really addressing the northernmost part of Israel. If you remember the book of Joshua, after they conquered the promised land, they divided the promised land up amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. And the tribes that got that northernmost part were the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. And, and they experienced hardship up there at the top of Israel because whenever armies from the north wanted to come wage war, who got it first? Zebulun and Naphtali got it first. And so if we look at 1 Kings 15 and verse 20, it says, So Ben-Hadad, who was the king of Syria listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his army against the cities of Israel and conquered Ejon, Dan, Abel, Beth, Maacah, and all of Chinneroth, besides all the land of Naphtali. So the king of Syria comes to wage war, and what does he do? He wipes out all the cities of the tribe of Naphtali. Then if we jump ahead to 2 Kings 15, this is now 120 years later, it says in verse 29, in the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, that's a fun name, king of Assyria, came and captured Ejon and Abel Beth Maacah. You notice these are the same cities. And Janoah and Kadesh and Hazer and Gilead and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. So 120 years earlier, you had the king of Syria came and wiped out 
uh, Neftali. Now, 120 years later, it's the king of Assyria, which was a different empire, came and wiped out all the lands of Neftali and Zebulun and carries them away as captives to go serve as slaves in a foreign nation. And it's right after 2 Kings 15 is when Isaiah is prophesying here in Isaiah chapter 9. So he is speaking to the people of Zebulun and the people of Naphtali who have experienced the most hardship and the most struggle at the northernmost part of Israel. Now here's the thing. When one of these Old Testament prophets was prophesying, they would hear the words clearly from God and they had to be obedient to declare the word of God exactly as God told them to. Now, they didn't always understand what they were saying. They didn't exactly know how it was going to play out or what it was going to look like. They were just being obedient to declare the word of God. And a lot of times what would happen with one of these Old Testament prophets is that they would begin prophesying to a current event, something that was happening right at the moment. But as they're prophesying to the current events, they're also weaving in future prophecies. And they may not even realize it at the time, but that's what's happening. And so as we read this from Isaiah, what we're going to find is he is prophesying to the current events that are happening to Zebulun and Naphtali. But at the same time, he's weaving in the declaration of here comes heaven because he is also prophesying about the birth of Jesus. And he, at the same time, he is also prophesying about the second coming of Jesus and what it's going to look like. So let's read it and then let's break it down and let's talk about the declaration of God that heaven is coming. Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to read the first seven verses. It says, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And the name, his name will be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This was the declaration. Here comes heaven. So let's talk about here, what was Isaiah prophesying? What was happening? Let's begin in verse 1. The first announcement of here comes heaven was this. There would be no more gloom. He says there's going to be no more gloom for you, Zebulun and Naphtali. Now when I think of gloom, I picture Eeyore. 
Anybody watch Winnie the Pooh cartoons? Eeyore's a little blue donkey who walks around in a constant state of depression, right? Bad stuff is just always happening to him, and his response is usually just, it figures. And what does Eeyore have? He's got his own personal rain cloud. Wherever he goes, even if it's bright and sunny outside, there's a rain cloud just darkening his day, and Eeyore is just gloomy. And God is declaring there's going to be no more gloom. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali were in anguish. They had just been conquered. Their cities had been wiped out. Their people had been carried away captive. And basically what Isaiah is saying is that you're gloomy right now and God has held you in contempt right now. Why has he held them in contempt? Because of their sin. Because they abandoned worshiping the one true God and began to worship pagan gods. And so God held them in contempt. And part of that judgment, part of the consequence for their sin was this Assyrian empire coming from the north to come and bring judgment upon them. And he's saying, we understand that you're in gloom right now. We understand that you're in anguish right now. But there is a day coming. I want you to have hope, Zebulun. I want you to have hope, Naphtali, because there is a day coming when you will no longer be gloomy, but in fact, you will be glorious. Heaven is coming, and when heaven comes, you're going to go from gloom to glory. Think about this. Zebulun and Naphtali, as time went on, even when the people were allowed to return to Israel... In the northern part of Israel, there was much more mixture. There was ethnic mixture where the Jews began to intermarry with some of the Assyrians and some of the different nations that came. And there was also religious mixture as they began to not only worship the one true God, but mix in pagan practices and, and, and different pagan gods. And there was a lot more mixture in the northern part of the country. In southern Israel, where Jerusalem was, in the land of Judah, there was much more purity of we're Jewish and we only worship the one true God and, and we have stood apart. And so there was this thinking that if the Messiah was going to come, that if God was going to send his Savior, he would send his Savior to Jerusalem because they deserved it. Because they had set themselves apart. They were the quote-unquote good kids, right? Right? But yet, what is Isaiah prophesying right here? He says, but later on, Zebulun and Naphtali, you shall be glorious. Why? Because the glory of God is going to come through you. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. He says the glory of God is not going to come from Jerusalem. It's going to come from Galilee. And what do you know when Jesus is born? Where is he raised? A village called Nazareth. Look at Matthew chapter 4. Let me just read this to you. It won't be on the screen. Matthew writes, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. The glory of God came from Galilee in the northern region, as Jesus was raised in a village called Nazareth, and then when he became an adult, he established his ministry base in a city called Capernaum. God says, you are moving from gloom to glory. Zebulun and Naphtali, you are gloomy now, but when heaven comes, the glory of God is going to come through you. 
And I believe that same promise applies today. You might be going through gloom. You might have your own personal rain cloud. You might be in one of those seasons in your life where it's just down and nothing seems to be working out. And God says, gloom is going to turn into glory. You just hang in there. Verse 2, when he says, here comes heaven, he says, here comes light. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Those words there for dark land, in other translations, they've been translated to be the valley of death, which might sound familiar if, you're, uh, if, if you know Psalms 23, when David said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. And Isaiah is prophesying years after David, saying that those that live in a dark land, those that dwell in the valley of death, will experience the lights. And when we read the Gospel of John, what do we read? John says, in him was life, and the, light was the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. In chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says, this is the condemnation. That the light came into the world, and people loved darkness more than they loved the light. Or in John chapter 8, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when Jesus stands up and declares, I am the light of the world. Why was that significant? Because at that point in the Feast of Tabernacles is when they would light the candles that would represent God because God was the pillar of fire that led them by light in the wilderness. And for Jesus to stand up at that moment and say, I am the light of the world, that was him declaring, I am God. And the Jews understood that. Light is coming. And all throughout the Bible, light represents the goodness of God. It represents the guidance of God. It represents the salvation of God. In Isaiah 58, Isaiah declared that the light will break forth when the salvation of God comes. Listen, if you're walking in darkness, if you're far from God, and you're in that dark place, the light is ready to break forth because heaven has come. Verse 3 begins with, you shall multiply the nation. What does it mean that you shall multiply the nation? Well, we understand in the Old Testament that the Jewish people were God's chosen people. And they were really God's only chosen people. This small nation in the Middle East represented those who God had decided to make his presence available to. Those that God had decided to tabernacle with, to be with, to interact with. They were God's chosen people. But when Jesus came, all of a sudden, it wasn't just for the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. When Jesus came, suddenly the presence of God was made available to everybody. And because the glory came through Galilee, came through Zebulun and Naphtali, because of that glory, God was now available to everybody all over the world. And everybody in the room who's not Jewish says amen, right? Because it's now available to us. So what was only available to a small amount of people has now been multiplied. The nation of God's chosen people has now been multiplied. And for us to recognize that we have now become a part of something. At Christmas time, and it can get lonely. Christmas time is when we start to think about people that have died. 
and family members that we're missing. At Christmas time is when we start to recognize that we're alone and we so long to be with people. And yet God says that Jesus has multiplied the nation. Jesus has made you a part of something and you are not alone. And if you're experiencing loneliness and you are missing family in this season, understand that God has made you a part of a greater family and God has made you a part of something bigger and we can find hope in the fact that we are not alone. We can look around this room and we can see simply that everybody in this room is family. Everybody in this room is a part of the multiplying nation of Jesus. Everybody in this room, we can stand together and know that we are not alone. This one's one of my favorites. How about this? When heaven comes, there is increased gladness. Increased gladness. The rest of verse 3 says, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoils. So God wanted to give a metaphor for how happy they were going to be in the kingdom of heaven. And so since most of the people in Israel were either farmers or soldiers, those were the two metaphors that he used to try to describe the gladness. For the farmers, he said, you will be glad as with the gladness of the harvest. When you were a farmer, harvest time was celebration time. When you brought in the harvest, that's when you knew, all right, my crops made it. They didn't get struck with a disease. Blight didn't wipe them out. A famine or, I mean, a, a drought didn't come and kill the crop. We gathered in the harvest. And because we gathered in the harvest, my family is going to eat this year. The community is going to have food this year. We're going to be okay this year. And so when you gathered in the harvest, it was a celebration. It was a great party. There was increased gladness. Or he says, how about the soldiers? When you've won the victory, when the battle is over, and the only thing left to do is to collect the spoils of war. There is gladness when you're gathering the spoils. When you're going through the conquered city and you're like, oh, I just found a bunch of gold. Oh, here's some nice clothes. Oh, here's some extra sheep. We're gathering up the spoils. It's a celebration. He's saying, I'm going to increase your gladness. Now, if God were to speak to us on Kauai, he might use some different metaphors so we could understand the increase in gladness, right? He might say, you're going to be glad in the presence, just like if you were dropping into that perfect wave and it was just starting to barrel over your head. Whoo, come on. There's some joy there. There's some gladness. You're going to be glad in his presence, like when that little bell starts to ring and you know you've got a big fish on the line and it's pulling your line out and you're picking up your pole and you're going to start reeling it in. There's some gladness. I'm going to increase your gladness. Heaven has come, and with it, he has brought an increase in our gladness. If you're struggling in this season without joy, know that joy has come as the kingdom of heaven comes into your hearts. In verse 4, he says that when heaven comes, the yoke will be broken. When heaven comes, the yoke will be broken. He says, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff that is on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. 
When you think about a yoke, it's basically this shaped piece of wood that you would put on the shoulders of two oxen, and then there's this other wooden clasp that goes up underneath that holds the yoke to their necks, and then you can make those oxen pull whatever you want them to pull. But the sad thing is when you think about they would actually put those on human beings that were slaves and force them to do hard labor with yokes upon their neck. And they would use the staff that is in their hands and lay that staff upon their shoulder to bring discipline. If my slave isn't working hard enough, if I don't like the way they are, I'm going to use the rod of oppression. And I'm going to lay that thing across their back. And I'm going to beat them with that staff. And here Isaiah is declaring to Zebulun and Naphtali who have been carried away as slaves and are now facing a life with a yoke on their neck and a rod being laid across their back. And Isaiah says, for you, the heaven that is coming, Jesus shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff that is on their shoulders. If you are struggling in oppression... If you are struggling, feeling that you're enslaved to something, heaven has come. And when heaven comes, the oppression is broken. The slavery is broken. The torture that comes from the enemy is broken. He no longer has anything with which to beat you with. And he says, as at the battle of Midian. Why is that significant? Because the battle of Midian is when Gideon led a tiny army to deliver Israel from the Midianites. And the army was so small that only God could get the glory for the victory. And Isaiah is declaring only God is going to get the glory when you are delivered and set free. When the yoke is broken off of your back. And finally, when heaven comes, peace comes with it. He says, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning Fuel for the fire. Basically what Isaiah is saying is every accessory of war, whether it's the boots that the soldiers wear when they march in the battle or whether it's the cloak that they are wearing that was covered in blood because of the hand-to-hand combat that they were doing, whether it be your weapons or your armor or whatever it is, everything that you used for war, the only thing it's going to be good for is burning in the fire because you're not going to have to fight anymore. There's not going to be any more wars anymore. There is only going to be peace that comes. And if you're struggling in this season to find peace because there's just stress and there's worry and you feel like you're fighting and you're scrapping for your family and you feel like you're trying to do everything to to keep your family afloat or to not lose your kids, Isaiah says the time is coming when you're going to burn all of that and there will just be peace. You don't have to fight anymore. It's not your battle anymore. Just like in the battle of Midian, it's God that's going to deliver you. In verse 6, he says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And I love this. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. First, he says, a child will be born to us. He is declaring that when heaven comes to earth, it's going to come in the form of a human baby. A child is going to be born to us. And his name, now some translations say wonderful counselor. 
Other translations put a comma in between them because they're two separate titles. Wonderful stands alone. You don't need to attach wonderful to anything. All you got to say is Jesus is wonderful. He brings awe in how good he is and how kind he is. Even when Jesus was walking on the earth, he left people in awe at how he spoke with authority and how he spoke with such wisdom and how he taught the Bible in a way that nobody else had ever taught the Bible before. He is wonderful. He is a counselor. What do counselors do? They guide us. They teach us. They impart truth to us. They help us to live the life that we've been called to live. He is the counselor. He is mighty God. So he's going to be born as a human being, but he's going to be known as mighty God. Isaiah is prophesying that he's going to be fully human and fully God at the same time. This next one is a big deal. Eternal father. See, when we read that now, we're like, well, yeah, we get it, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God the Father. In Galatians, when the Spirit comes into our hearts, we cry out, Abba, Father, which means Daddy, God, right? We, we get it, but in 800 B.C., when Isaiah is prophesying this, the Jewish people did not call God Father. They called him Yahweh, And they were even afraid to say that name out loud because they thought if they said it in an unworthy manner, they would just drop dead on the spot. The Jewish people knew God and they loved God, but they did not have the intimacy with God to call him father. And so for Isaiah to prophesy that when heaven came in the form of this baby, he would be known as eternal father. What Isaiah is prophesying is that there's going to be an intimacy with God that nobody knew in 800 BC. But after Jesus came, there's going to be an intimacy with God that we know. We're actually going to call him father. And for the Jews that heard Isaiah say this, they would have been shocked. It would be considered blasphemy. And finally, the Prince of Peace. Jesus is going to rule in peace. Let me have the worship team come back up. I told you I would title this message, The Ever-Expanding Kingdom. Well, listen to verse 7. It says, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You realize that we live today in the tension of the now versus the not yet. Jesus, when he came, said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here right now, but it's not yet fully revealed. And so everything we talked about that God declared that heaven is coming and with it is going to come, the the, the gloom is going to turn into glory and with it is going to come light and with it is going to come the multiplying of the nation of God and with it is going to come the increase in gladness. With it is going to come the victory over oppression. With it is going to come peace. All of that we experience in our hearts. Because the kingdom of heaven rules and reigns in our hearts when we make the decision to follow Jesus. And so we can experience that peace, that victory. We can experience that gladness and that togetherness. We experience all of that. But when we look around outside of ourselves, well, there's still war and there's still division 
and there's still anger, and there's still hatred. And that's the now versus the not yet. The kingdom of heaven is here now as it rules and reigns in our hearts. But Isaiah is also prophesying of a day when Jesus comes back, when the kingdom of heaven is going to rule the entire earth, not just in our hearts, but physically. And that's what we call heaven. It's going to be the eternity that we spend with the kingdom of God here on earth. And when that comes, there will be no more gloom. There will be only glory. There will be only peace. There will be only gladness. There will be only togetherness. But until that day comes when Jesus comes back, from the time he came until today, the kingdom is continuing to expand. It says that his government will not stop increasing. As the gospel goes out and as it began just in Jerusalem after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, it began to spread out from Jerusalem. And from that day until today, it is still spreading around the known world to different ethnicities and different people groups. The word of God is being translated into different languages and people who have never heard the gospel before. And so as we talk about being a part of something, we are a part of a kingdom that is still expanding, that is still growing. And the more people that come to receive Jesus, the more the peace is going to expand. We're a part of an ever-expanding kingdom. And we are going to live in the tension right now as we enjoy the kingdom of God in our hearts until the day that the kingdom of God reigns forever. And we get to spend eternity with him. That is the hope. God is declaring heaven is coming. I know what it's like to live without hope. I know what it's like to be lost in my own sin. I know what it's like to be so deep in depression that you don't care about life anymore. And you don't care if the next batch of drugs that you do is going to kill you or not. And you don't care who you hurt. And you don't want anything to do with God and you don't want anything to do with the people who love you. I've lived there and I've been there. But then the kingdom of heaven came. And the kingdom of heaven invaded my heart. The kingdom of heaven as it continued to expand suddenly consumed me and brought me in. And I experienced hope. And I experienced the peace and the gladness. And I experienced the victory over the oppression. And I experience feeling like I'm a part of something and I'm not alone anymore. And that kingdom is still expanding and growing today. Will you stand with me today? We are going to worship. And I am just believing that this is a time of celebration. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is available. Everything that God promised through Isaiah is right now at hand for us to lay a hold of. As we worship today. I just believe that the kingdom of heaven is going to move upon our hearts. And we are going to celebrate today, Emmanuel, God with us. Not a distant God, not a God that we can only engage through rituals or traditions, but an intimate God, a wonderful God, an eternal Father, a God who is willing to come close to us, to become so close that he became a human, that he walked among us, that he experienced life with us, that he modeled righteousness for us, and that he paid the ultimate price so that we could have salvation.
Let's celebrate that God with us today.